pretty cool episode here of the Behind the You podcast. Storyline's a little bit different, but when you, you open the season against Alabama on ABC, we got to get in and talk some nitty-gritty X's and O's football. And pleased to be joined by the man who will be calling this game on ABC, Todd Blackledge. Todd, thanks for doing this. Oh, it's good to be with you, man. Looking forward to the start of the season and uh, really excited about our game one matchup. Let's just get right to it. What intrigues you about this matchup? What jumps out at you? Well, I love Derek King, first of all. You know, I'm, I'm glad that he's back. It sounds like he's recovered really well from his knee injury and will be 100% ready to go. I just think that, you know, he's one of those dynamic, exciting, dual threat kind of guys who uh, can make a difference, you know. And historically, teams that have given Alabama some problems have had quarterbacks that have the capabilities that Derek King has. Now, they've adjusted their defense over the last few years, they're faster, they're more athletic, you know, than, than they used to be. However, a guy like that to me in a game one, especially with a new quarterback starting on the other side for the first time, a guy like Derrick King gives Miami a chance. What do you like about from what you saw a year ago or as you've gotten ready for this game? What do you like about the marriage of Rhett Lashley and Derrick King? Yeah, I think it's been a really good fit. And that's, you know, marriage is a great way to describe it because they spent so much time together. And, you know, I've seen both good and bad fits when it comes to coordinators and quarterbacks in particular. I think this is a really good fit. I think of the quarterback Malik Wilson at, at Liberty with Hugh Freeze, I think is another great fit, you know, but it doesn't always work that way. But in this case, you know, for Dierick, I mean, think about this. This is the first time in his career that he's going to have the same system, the same coordinator the same relationship. I mean, that's almost mind-boggling, you know, to have performed at such a high level and to have so much change and turnover in systems and, and the voices he's talking to and the coordinator he's had. So uh, I would expect a huge year from, him, uh, from them together this year. Can Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit because I think sometimes people just hear that and they just kind of blow it off, right? Ah, five corners, five years, he's playing football, it's no big deal. You played the position. Can you speak to the importance of the continuity now of having two years of being with the same guy in terms of coach Lashley with the Eric. Right. I mean, the continuity is, I think it's critically important, you know, and I mean, I play back in the day when I played, I had the same coaching staff offensively for all four years that I was there. And I think that continuity is important because particularly today, the way the game is played, there's so much that the quarterback is doing at the line of scrimmage. There's so much that's happening fast with no huddle offenses and up-tempo offenses that the better the coordinator, the play caller, the quarterback coach, and the quarterback, the more they're on the same page and know what the other guy's thinking and know what the other guy is anticipating, the better that's going to be. And so that's why I think in year two, all of that will be better between Rhett and Derek, you know, just sitting in meetings together, watching film together, going over practice film, going over game plans. Two years of that is just, it's going to pay dividends. Have you ever had a chance to talk with Derek? I did. I talked to him when he was at Houston. We did an opening game. Gosh, I guess it would have been three years ago. The, the years all kind of run together for me. But we did Houston against Oklahoma in an opener. You know, he was the quarterback for that game. And uh, and I can remember going down to watch Houston practice and seeing him. And yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a, a really bright kid, you know, really understands football, is a real competitor, was brought up 
you know, and learned the game from his dad and learned all the right things and the right way to play, the right way to compete. And uh, yeah, he's a, he's, he's a fun guy to talk to. All right. So what's the roadmap for Miami? Obviously the challenge is tall, right? It's the returning champs, the machine that is now Alabama. But as you've sort of glanced through this, what would be the roadmap for Miami or what is a roadmap against Alabama, whoever you are? I think, first of all, in game one, you've got a great opportunity, you know, because there's unknowns on both sides. And so you you come into that and you, you know, maybe have some things offensively, some new wrinkles that you have not shown yet that aren't on tape. You know, Alabama defensively with Nick Saban, you know, they want to try to match everything you do. They want to match your personnel. They want to try to stop every play. And so, you know, they do a lot of checking and communicating at the line of scrimmage. So I think the combination of some new wrinkles offensively and the tempo that Miami can play with, again, with the second year with the Eric running this offense and you know red had time at auburn he knows he's played against alabama he's coached against alabama he knows what they like to do defensively and how they like to try to get locked in so tempo can bother them the skill set that the eric has can bother them you know they obviously have to take care of the football they can't turn the ball over and be careless with the football on the other side i think the biggest challenge will be you know alabama is going to challenge miami to see if they can stop the run you know last year that was you know one of the problems i think with Miami's defense and uh, you know Manny now is a play caller he has a history of being very aggressive and and more attacking but the bottom line at the end of the day you still better be able to put your nose in there and stop the run when you need to and so I think that will be stopping the run and then finding ways to affect the new quarterback you know Bryce Young is he's a very gifted guy has a great throwing arm can really spin it but he's thrown 23 passes as a college quarterback and he's not the biggest guy you know he's a smaller quarterback in stature than than both Tua was or Mac Jones last year. So getting bodies around him, affecting him, getting his eyes moving uh, away from his targets, I think will be important for Miami. From the Miami point of view, this is a Miami podcast, outside of De'Ara King, as you've gotten to either watch tape or talk to coaches and study personnel, what players are you looking forward to seeing? Obviously, I like Rambo. You know, I liked him when he was at Oklahoma. I, I thought he was one of their best guys. He was their deep threat guy. And so I think that's a great addition for Miami. Uh, the other receiver, Hartley, I, I like him. You know, I think he can make a lot of things happen. You know, I think their offensive line at times showed great improvement last year. And then when they played some of the more physical defensive fronts, you know, they had their hands full. You know, I, I'm curious to see if that group a year later, a year better is able to handle it because Alabama will be, if not the most physical defensive front they faced, there won't be many that are that are any better than that. I mean, they are their front seven is very physical and they will really challenge, you know, Miami when it comes to that at the point of attack. So I think that, you know, a couple of the transfers on defense, Tyreek Stevenson, I know was a he was a big time recruit. Georgia had high hopes for him. Uh, it didn't necessarily pan out or work out, but he seems to be comfortable back home and he's got an NFL body type as a corner, the same kind of corners you're going to see that line up for Alabama. That's the same kind of guys they recruit, the same body type. So uh, I, I think those guys are going to be interesting to watch. And the other transfer, DeAndre Johnson, he was a proven SEC guy. And uh, now he's getting a chance to go against Alabama again, uh, wearing a different uniform and from another team. So again, I think it's exciting. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity for Miami uh, right out of the gate to make a statement about what this season can be like for them. Let's talk about that opportunity 
opportunity. It's certainly a, uh, there's a stiff opposition on the other side. Just when you look back at a year ago, Todd, what they did, Alabama, just how ridiculous was what they accomplished and how they did it. Yeah, last year, you know, here's here's what's crazy is, first of all, they played 10 games, they played only STC games, and they dominated everybody they played until the last game, the SEC championship game against Florida was a shootout, right? But they just absolutely rolled through everybody in that league. They were not a great defense last year. They were a good defense, but not a typical Alabama defense, but their offense was off the charts. And and I didn't think I'd ever see a better offense than I saw in 2019 with Joe Burrow leading LSU uh, and, you know, those receivers. And, and I'm not so sure that the Alabama offense last year wasn't better because I think the offensive line Alabama had last year was better than the LSU offensive line. I mean, Joe Burrow was deservedly the number one pick, but Mac Jones was a first round pick, right? So what they did last year was remarkable. It was led and driven by their offense. I think that's what will be a little bit different this year is at least initially, Alabama's team will be driven by their defense. I think that's where their experience is. That's where their some of their marquee players are coming into this season. They still have talent on offense, right? John Mechie's a great wide receiver, but I wouldn't put him in the same category as Devontae Smith, who was a total game wrecker and game changer. And Jalen Waddle, when he was healthy, was the same kind of guy. So they've got good young backs that are kind of unproven, but Najee Harris was a workhorse. I mean, he was he was a go-to guy. I don't know that they have that yet. And then they're replacing three starters on the offensive line and their tight end and their offensive coordinator and a bunch of other offensive assistants and analysts. So that's why I say catching them in week one is the best time to try to get after them a little bit. A couple of follow-ups to that. So defensively, where do you see the strength of that side of the ball and where do you think maybe they're better than a year ago? I think their strength will be their outside linebacker position, you know, and they call them different things. You know, in some cases they look like defensive ends the way they line up. Some cases they look like outside linebackers, but they've got two, three, four guys that can really rush the passer that are outstanding players. And I think that's what their strength will be. They're always going to have big guys inside, you know, that can play those techniques inside to stuff the run. They have a couple returning secondary guys that are outstanding players. They lost a great cornerback in Patrick Sertan. I mean, he was you know, one of the best in the country. But, you know, Josh Job is an outstanding corner. They're always good at safety. But I think those outside linebackers that they can kind of use as run stuffers, but also guys who can get after the quarterback, I think they'll rush the passer better this year than they have probably since, you know, the last four or five years. I think they'll, they'll be a better pass rushing team than they were the last few years. How big a loss was Sark? Sark did a great job there. You know, he did a great job with Tua. He did a great job with Mac Jones. They loved him. You know, I think Sark's time in the NFL served him well when he came back to college football. He had new ideas, some new creativity. I think that part of it is the same thing that Bill O'Brien has. You know, he spent a lot of good years in the NFL. And Bill O'Brien is a really good football coach. I mean, I, I was very impressed with him and the job he did when he took over at Penn State in a very difficult situation. And, you know, He's an NFL guy. He's been with Belichick. Now he's with Saban. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to utilize personnel. He knows how to attack defenses. So I think they'll be okay there. 
I, I really do, because they replaced a high-quality guy with another high-quality guy. You mentioned before the losses and the turnover, and Coach Saban's always has some of that, you know, to some degree, you know, maybe a little more this year than in years past, but there's talent going to the NFL, there's coaches leaving. From your time around him, when you talk football with him, like, what sticks out to you? What sticks out to you about either his knowledge of the game or how he runs his program? Well, a couple things. First of all, his work ethic. He's a tireless worker, whether it's recruiting, whether it's whatever it is. And some guys think, you know, well, and, and you hear that he's a hard guy to work for. You know, not as hard of a guy to play for as it is to work for. But Nick is never going to ask anybody on his staff to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. He is a relentless worker, a relentless recruiter. That's number one. Number two, he has a hand on the pulse, a finger on the pulse of every aspect of the program. I mean, he knows what is going on in every hallway, in every office, in every in every room in that building. He knows what's going on. I think the other thing, I think he's a brilliant evaluator of talent. You know, he has a certain type that he looks for in recruiting and it's kind of an NFL mindset and he recruits body types for certain positions. You know, I'm not saying it's the most scientific thing in the world, but there is science behind it for him and it's proven uh, and his process has proven that they develop guys and put them in the, at the next level as well as anybody in, in college football and in the last many years. So, and then just the consistency to be able to do it year in and year out in today's college football where you can't overload rosters you know you can't take 120 scholarship guys so like Alabama used to do back in, in Bear Bryant's day every guy's got the same numbers and this guy you know they have eight guys picked in the first 40 picks in the of the last NFL draft but that happens every year. They have seven to eight guys going the first two rounds every year. They reloaded on the other end with great recruiting but the important thing is they develop those guys. It's not just the five stars they bring in. It's the NFL guys they turn out because they develop those guys through their system and the kids buy into it. You mentioned before, kind of sort of circling back real quick about last year's team, right? It was driven by their offense. The defense maybe wasn't as good. And obviously, again, we were trying to look through this the lens a little bit of, of a Miami fan. And it's the first game and it's hope. And you said a good opportunity. The teams who had success offensively against that Bama defense last year, what, what did they do? Where were the opportunities? You know, the two that stand out to me the most, as I mentioned earlier, Florida in the SEC championship game. And that was, you know, good play calling by Dan Mullen keeping them off balance and Kyle Trask making some big time throws. Now, Florida had an outstanding tight end, Kyle Pitts, who was a matchup nightmare for anybody they played because he had wide receiver skill set, but a big tight end body and he played inside and you know, he was too big for safeties and a little bit too athletic and quick for linebackers. So, you know, I think they did a great job of keeping Alabama off balance mixing the run and pass and, and mostly just a quarterback making big time plays. The other game that stood out to me and I did this game was what Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss were able to do to Alabama midway through the season. And again, Lane, you know, he knows Nick really well. I wouldn't say Rhett Lashley knows Nick as well as Lane Kiffin did. Lane was on the staff, coached against him every day, but he knew the weak points and the pressure points of that defense and knew how to create issues. And, and I thought now Ole Miss couldn't stop anybody they had no chance of stopping Alabama I mean it was you know they were never going to slow them down they had to score almost every possession but for a while there they they went back and forth with them and Lane did a great job of not only calling plays because I think they ran for 240 some yards against Alabama in that game as well they mixed run and pass 
and they used formation. They, they did things formationally, putting formations into the boundary, doing things that created some confusion for Alabama and then hit them with some big plays. And uh, again, their quarterback, Matt Corral, played really well. You have to have a quarterback that plays his A game to beat Alabama. I mean, that's just, you know, that's kind of a given. But I think both of those guys, Dan Mullen for Florida and Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, did some things formationally, motion-wise, changing strength, doing things. Because, again, Alabama's a defense that does a lot of talking, a lot of checking, a lot of communicating. And if you can get those guys with their eyes in the wrong place or a little bit of confusion, you can make some plays on them. Just kind of while we have a final few minutes with you, kind of open our open the lens here a little bit to college football. It's been a wild offseason. When you first heard what was happening with Texas and Oklahoma, you thought what? I was stunned, you know, and I just think the fact that it was so secretive and so unknown. I mean, I've got a, a good friend of mine who lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who, you know, has kind of been a resource for me in college football for many years and kind of has his ear to the ground more than anybody I know. And I talked to him shortly after and he was like, never heard a word about it, you know? So I think it was just stunning. I have a vested personal interest in all that's going on right now too, because I have my youngest son is starting as a freshman now at TCU as a baseball player. And so I'm interested and concerned what's going to happen to the big 12. You know, there's news today now that they're considering BYU and considering ways to expand this whole alliance with these other three. I have no idea what that means. That, that I read, listened to the press conference, read the notes to me didn't make I have no idea what that alliance is going to amount to but you know Texas and Oklahoma going is that's a seismic shift and you know you're talking about two major national brands Oklahoma has been more successful on the football field the last several years than Texas but two huge programs joining an already huge conference and uh, you know the big question now is they're saying it's not going to happen until 2025, but is that really going to be the case? Will they try to start playing football before then? That's that's the biggest question now. Where do you think we're headed as a sport? Do you see a, a break off? Do we see a Super League? Are, are you in favor of any of that? Do you even like what is happening? I'm not necessarily in favor of a Super League. You know, I, I'm too much of a traditionalist, I guess. You know, I'm too old school. I mean, I, I still like rivalries. I still like bowl games. I still like a lot of things, you know, that, that are slipping away piece by piece. I think we are headed towards your top schools, football playing schools, kind of making a little bit of a break from, you know, to do their own thing. I, I kind of see that happening, but I don't know if it necessarily means one big super league or four 16 team conferences or whatever it amounts to. But I think just from a legislative standpoint, I think those main power five schools are, are moving towards kind of having their own say in what they're doing. With NIL, I'm going to take a slightly different path. So in your time at Penn State, who was getting courted by uh, companies in your time at Penn State if NIL was around? Well, you know, certainly anytime you're a quarterback at, at a major school, <laughs> you're, you're going you're gonna to have opportunities, right? You are. Right? My roommate, Kurt Warner, who was our starting tailback, was the best player on our team. He would have had plenty of opportunities. Kenny Jackson, our, you know, one of our speed wide receivers, you know, skill guys are, they're the guys people watch. They're the guys people People see, you know, we had great offensive linemen too. So hopefully they would have gotten some kind of restaurant deal. Like I see some of these guys getting, you know, at the barbecue joints or whatever. That could have been, uh, we talked earlier, 
taste of the town hasn't been around, but you maybe could have incorporated some experiences with some players. Yeah, that could have been good. We could have uh, we could have maybe worked some things out. You know, in the NFL, and I'll be interested to see how this happens with guys like Spencer Rattler, guys like De'Ari King, guys like Bryce Young, who you know has not started a game yet and, and supposedly has high six figures worth of deals. You know, in the NFL as a quarterback, because the NFL locker room was always like that, right? Guys all made different amounts and got paid more than other guys. Quarterbacks would do things for their offensive linemen. They'd buy them Christmas gifts or they'd take them out to dinner, do different things. So I would imagine we'll see something similar happening, either pushing some NIL stuff a quarterback does towards his offensive line or figuring some way, some creative way to do something for those guys because uh, as good as they are, that's going to determine how good you are. Yeah, they should get, Derek should, uh, or one of the offensive linemen should vouch to get hired as a consultant so that when Derek's cutting his deals, they, they line item, you know, they line item an, an end of your, an end of your dinner. So he budgets it for his, uh, in his bank account. And I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but I was thinking about this when I knew I was going to do the show with you, you know, it's kind of an interesting connection I have with Miami just from a, a playing standpoint. When I was in school, so my freshman year at Penn State was 1979 and I was redshirt. I got hurt the week before the season started. So I redshirted my freshman year, but I, I remember, you know, watching in Beaver Stadium, Jim Kelly make his first start as a Miami Hurricane and just shredded our defense through for, you know, I think 280 yards. And, and it was fun to watch as a quarterback. It was a real pro-style offense, you know, and, and uh, he was, you know, of course, a Pennsylvania kid and it was a big deal for him and did a great job against our team. And then we, I think we had a three-year series with him because we played him, we won my sophomore year pretty handily. And then my junior year, we were ranked number one and played down in the Orange Bowl midway through the season. And they upset us. And this was, you know, right before my, Miami was just about to turn the corner of being really good. So that was 1981. And, you know, they knocked us off and we were ranked number one in the country. And we still ended up having a great season and a great team. We ended up knocking off number one pit at the end of that season with Dan Marino. But those three years, I mean, I can remember that loss in the Orange Bowl 17 to 14 in 1981 was one that really, uh, you know, that kind of stuck in my craw for a long time. Well, you got it. Your program got us back a few years later in, in, uh, in the Fiesta Bowl. So that, that one sticks in our craw. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It's funny. Our color analyst, Don Bailey Jr., was a freshman. And he also made, I believe, his first start in that 79 game with Jim Kelly. So I've heard that story before because that story has come up. I was going to ask you, Todd. Actually, it's funny. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you in closing, you know, we lost Howard Schnellenberger this year and, and you had, you know, that run against his teams and you might have even interacted with him later as a broadcaster just sort of what he did at Miami what he did in college football just because you did have that connection yeah you know I just I as soon as you said his name what the image I got and it was almost like surreal I could smell I could smell his pipe you know <laughs> I mean it was like I mean I just got that sense of him you know I can remember you know obviously he what he did at Miami was remarkable he built a great program there and then it was carried on by guys after him, but he was the builder, you know, and he did that in other places. You know, I, I think he was an innovator. He was a program builder. He was a great recruiter, obviously. And uh, he, he had a charisma about him that was that was pretty unique. 
All right, Todd, thank you so much for doing this. The insight was tremendous, and we look forward to seeing you Saturday in Atlanta for what, what should be a fun game and a great way for us to start the season and be in a stadium that will have fans and energy yes. and electricity, <laughs> and it, sh it should be a lot of fun for all. I think we're all looking forward to getting it reacquainted with our sport. Yep, absolutely. Great being with you, Josh. See you on Saturday. <laughs>